On today's episode, we speak with industrial psychologist Dr. Sarah Stanley Falaw about the characteristics that predict an individual's propensity to build wealth, why physicians have a bad reputation in this department, and what we can do to improve. Dr. Flaw is the author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and the founder of DataPoints, a research and technology company that provides advisors and individuals with behavioral science tools to achieve financial success. DataPoints created the industry's first assessment of an individual's propensity to build wealth based on The Millionaire Next Door. Dr. Flaw received her PhD in applied psychology from the University of Georgia. We dive into the six behavioral components that contribute to an individual's propensity to build wealth. And these are social indifference, frugality, an internal locus of control, confidence in financial literacy, conscientiousness, and planning and monitoring. We discuss how a few big decisions can have far-reaching consequences on our ability to build wealth, like choosing a neighborhood, choosing a spouse, and taking the time to create a long-term comprehensive financial plan. She gives us some smaller habits to help us develop our wealth-building potential, like suggestions for apps that allow us to check in on our finances easily, reading blogs and books to allow us to realize how much control we really do have and how much success others have had. And we end with how she's passing that wealth-building mindset on to her children. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Sarah Stanley Falaw, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. So everyone wants to be wealthy, just like everyone wants to be popular, loved, fit, attractive. Some of these things we're born with, like a trust, but according to you and your father's research, Much more often than not, it's really hard work and discipline that gets you to wealth, not inheritance. Now, physicians certainly don't lack for grit and discipline, but when it comes to wealth accumulation, we're really the butts of jokes. So why do you think it is that physicians are such under accumulators of wealth, to use your terminology? You know, I think that there are a couple of different reasons for that, and you're you're right that that the the discipline and um, you know the perseverance that's required to get through um, medical school and residency and all of that um, are, are very clear. Uh, you know, I think that there are a couple of different reasons. Um, you know, one in particular that we've been beginning to research, uh, and we've seen this before in terms of how our life experiences start out and kind of what we think of when we think of a physician has sort of an impact on on what we end up spending if we don't have anybody guiding us, right? So if I think that becoming a doctor and, you know, means and equals having a huge house and a big car or lots of cars, let's say, that might be sort of the schema, if you will, kind of a psychological map of what it looks like to be a doctor. And so when you become a doctor and you don't maybe have a lot of experience managing your personal finances, you end up spending to sort of achieve what you think it, it means to be a doctor. So I think that that's one reason. And then again, I think that again, like like any professional, you're you know a lot of physicians are very much focused on on their work, on the work that they do, and 
because of the high income, I think that they often mistakenly think, well, that's going to sort of take care of the finances, right? You know, there's not much more I need to do. But thankfully, there are folks like you and others that are sharing that, hey, that's not it. You know, that, that income isn't, isn't the only thing that you need to be worrying about. And, and so I think that that's changing over time. Yeah, I was just in the operating room with an anesthesiologist and was chatting with him about this topic. And he said, you know, I have a guy. Okay, mm. well, what is that guy doing for you? You know, he, he manages my money. He makes sure that I'm doing the right thing. W- well, what does that mean? Like what exact, what tasks are he, is he accomplishing? What's your, what's your plan? How much are mm. you saving? Like, it, how is it invested? And he didn't, he didn't know because what's he, fo- he's focused on just being the best anesthesiologist he can be. And he just inherently trusts someone else to do that. And I, I personally, I think that that comes from also the fact that in our business, we don't necessarily need to understand finance. So if you had a doctor who's maybe running his own practice, that one is going to have his finger on the, or her finger on the pulse of what's going on. But if you're an employee, this is not where our expertise is. And a lot of other people that, that end up becoming wealthy do so because they're in industries that at least touch a little bit upon that. So mm-hmm. if you have like artists or athletes, right, these are also people who are notorious for not managing their money well, because it, it's not what it takes to be a good athlete or, or, or artist. So I think we, we kind of end up in that, in that area, one, because of what society expects us. And we're going to get to that because that's, you know, one of, one of social indifference, one of your, your six characteristics of what it really takes to accumulate wealth. But I think also just because we just, we don't know, we don't, we didn't need to know. And like you said, we're focused on our area of expertise. Yep, absolutely. You know, I think going back to something you said about, uh, I have a guy who's managing it, right? Or or a gal, let's say, too. I think that um, traditionally financial services institutions and organizations that were really focused on selling financial services, so receiving commissions and things like that. So not necessarily, you know, not necessarily doing what's in the best interests of their client, but instead selling products that were, you know, suitable to use a technical term. I think that for a long time, those organizations really focused on those high income earners and certainly physicians fall into that. So there's also sort of market forces, right? Working, working against folks um, and, and certainly trying to sell investments and sell certain investment products that aren't necessarily, you know, perhaps in the best interest. And like you said, there's a lot of focus on investing and maybe a little less focus on the planning and budgeting and all of that good stuff, which isn't as exciting maybe as, as the investing side. Yeah. I, I feel like a financial advisor who's telling you to stop spending, you know, don't buy that fancy car. Don't buy that big house. It's, that's the, that's what you need to hear. That, the, then the financial advisor learns what it feels like to be a doctor, right? Because in our job, it's our job to tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear the marketing mm-hmm. industry that tells you to, you know, take this supplement and you'll be skinny or whatever. Their job is to tell you what you want to hear. Our job is to tell you what you need to hear. But it sounds like that financial advisor uh, that, that takes on the, the individual to that degree uh, really is, you know, is giving advice that the person may not want to hear. And that might actually turn them away from that advisor. Right. I think that, you know, again, money is very emotional and our, our lifestyle and kind of how we live our life, you know, and having someone come in and, and tell us, hey, you know, you might want to think about doing things differently. That can be a real challenge. You know, like you said, whether it's in the healthcare field or 
um, in the financial services field. So, so you're right that some of us don't want to hear that message. It's hard to get that message across. But I think again, uh, particularly when it comes to money management, you know, your your finances depend on on hearing those maybe and sometimes criticism, if you will, and other ways of managing your financial life. And, and this is what your company does, right? You help to determine where those maybe personality characteristics or personality traits that, that the individual, where they're stronger and where they're weaker, you know, what, they, what the financial advisor needs to help them to focus on and help them to manage a bit better. Whereas if they're stronger in another characteristic, and we're, we're going to get to these later, you know, they, they don't necessarily need to pay as much attention to. So it's almost as if you're, you're diagnosing um, their, their weak points for accumulating wealth. Right. Yep. And so, you know, when we think about sort of all of the different characteristics that we have that make us who we are, you know, this is sort of the field of personality and individual differences. Uh, at Data Points, our company, we measure, uh, we use psychometrics, which is a way of measuring those those characteristics to help people identify, you know, where they may be tripped up when it comes to managing their financial life. So in addition to the things like you know, again, that we'll, we'll probably talk about related to wealth building, we measure things like even being open to having conversations about lifestyle. You know, some of us just don't, don't want to hear that and, um, and, and we'll really struggle with that kind of feedback. But it, that could be what's sort of holding us back from, you know, really achieving our financial goals. So, you know, our focus is on, like you said, the diagnosis, but really looking at the, the psychology of, of individuals and clients. I think your message is going to be easier for physicians to hear because a lot of the people in the personal finance space, they, they end up sounding like a salesperson. But hearing you, you sound like a scientist. So it, mm-hmm. it's just going to be easier for us to palette something coming, I think, from you than it will be from other <laughs> people in the finance industry. Because it just, it just it sounds like it makes sense. And it sounds like it's coming from a STEM background. You know, you're, you're one of our people. Right, right, right. Yep. No, we, we, I certainly don't, um, you know, have an MD. There are, you know, psychiatrists and things like that, that, that have that degree, but you know, absolutely. We're focused on making sure that we're actually measuring um, scientifically what we say we're measuring. Even if we're talking about something like risk tolerance, which there's a lot of talk, uh, or rather there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to understand your tolerance for taking certain risks when you're investing. Um, you really have to make sure that you're measuring that in an accurate, valid, and re- reliable way. So that's really what we, we what we focus on at Data Points. Especially since at the time of this recording, the Dow dropped 800 points yesterday. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you got you know, it's anticipating what we're going to do in the future is really helpful as well because again, you know, several weeks ago or months ago, things are looking great. You know, it's it's when things get rough that it's important to understand what your propensities are. Are you someone that's going to just constantly be watching CNBC to see what's happening all day long? Um, and, and wanting to, you know, kind of hit the hit the sell button at the moment something starts dropping or the market starts dropping, or can you, you know, be comfortable and confident during those times? Um, and so understanding that about yourself can ultimately help you become more financially successful. And I think that's a situation where that anesthesiologist is going to be in better shape because he's just going to be putting his head in the sand and, and letting someone else manage <laughs> that. So he's not even going to, CNBC is probably not even on his uh, on his radar. Yeah, you know, I, that that's a good point. I think that, um, you know, 
if that uh, if if his advisor is doing the right thing during those times, then that could make sense. But if he's paying a huge commission uh, for the the changes that he's making to his portfolio, then that's that's going to be a problem. So. In a previous podcast, we we talked about the science behind habit development. And as it turns out, smaller habits are much more likely to stick. So if you tell someone to floss between just two teeth once a day, at the end of the year, they're much more likely to still be flossing than someone who you tell to floss the, their whole mouth. Or when it comes to exercise, if if you want to start exercising, the goal should just be one push-up a day, not you know, start working out for an hour every other day. Because then at the end of the year, that second person is not likely going to be exercising anymore. And then they're actually going to even feel bad about themselves for not exercising. Um, right. So, so the, the big decisions take uh, significant willpower, but human beings aren't that high in the, in the willpower department for, for a period of time. But the smaller decisions don't take quite as much and you can build small habits like the one push-up a day. So right. I want to get to the small habits later. But mm-hmm. like, if you can just have one good workout, one really hard, really good workout that takes care of a lot of your financial problems for a year to come, I think that's tantamount to what you say about choosing your house and choosing your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk about the ramifications of, of where you decide to live and what house you decide to buy uh, in, in how it affects your financial life down the road, not just in the cost of the house itself. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, um, again, this goes back to, to the psychology of how we sort of interact with one another and how we're influenced by, by one another. You know, obviously there's a whole field, social psychology studies sort of our interactions. And one of the fields that is sort of related to that is sociometrics, looking at how we relate and compare ourselves to one another. So it happens, of course, uh, from a psychological perspective, especially if you're someone that um, maybe isn't as financially confident, doesn't have a lot of education about what it takes to build wealth, and someone that's sort of open to being influenced by others. If you uh, choose a house that is, you know, again, perhaps uh, a little more than you can afford right now, that comes with a whole host of other things that you're going to be respons- quote responsible for as as someone that's in that community, you're going to feel the influence of what other people are driving. Again, if you're confident, you don't have to worry about those kinds of things, then then that's okay. Uh, but again, you know, it really does influence a lot of spend or spending in a lot of other categories um, once you've purchased a house in a certain neighborhood. So, you know, my father talked about this quite a bit. Certainly studied it quite a bit. That a lot of these millionaire next door types are found in neighborhoods where you wouldn't imagine them to be. You know, you wouldn't, again, you know, they've got a $300,000 house, but yet they're worth, you know, $2 million. It just, it doesn't seem to make sense. But when you think about it from a scientific perspective, it makes sense because, again, they're not as influenced perhaps as their peers into purchasing everything else that goes along with that house. You know, that goes, uh, the, the other piece that's important there is that a lot of us think, well, I'll just, I'll keep moving around. I'll, I'll move to another neighborhood. Maybe I'll downsize. Well, even the moving has costs associated with it, right? So I think it's that, it's one of those things that, you know, the first choice can really, really put you on a trajectory. And so you have to think about that pretty seriously as you consider where you're going to live. And even if you think you can influence, you can avoid the social pressure, it's it's inevitably going to creep its way in into like the, I, I live on Long Island. So that, that, that is 
a place with a that is a hot box of social pressure where you know the car that you drive, the camp that you send your kids to. Oh yeah, it's, yep. uh, the, the you know what what SAT. My kids aren't nearly old enough for this type of stuff, but like what SAT tutor you're sending them to, right? All mm-hmm. of that stuff gets into keeping up with the Joneses, and all that stuff costs money. So absolutely, yeah, so all of it has has ramifications. So, aside, but aside from from buying your house and buying your neighborhood or, or deciding on the neighborhood, are there any other big decisions, big one-time decisions, or maybe a few times in a lifetime that, that are going to make a have a big impact on you afterwards, like your car, or I'm not sure it should come into the decision-making, but your spouse, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was the one I was going to mention. You know, when you think about being influenced by someone, right? That's that's someone that's constantly with you and in your house and shares, you know, should should be sharing in the sort of financial success of the household. So, you know, spouse is something that, you know, who you decide to share your life with. And this goes for friends as well, because you can think about friends in terms of the kinds of activities that you might be involved in. But certainly spouse, we have seen consistently that that uh, individuals, particularly business owners who have a spouse really able to manage the household finances like a business, uh, tend to be really successful. They have a budget. They know how much they're spending every week or every month. You know, they're frugal. They're not, you know, they're not extravagant. They're, they're really focused on, on building wealth over time. And even when they've built that wealth, they, they tend to be pretty consistent in their spending. That is to say, even when they've made it, so to speak, they're not out there, you know, vacationing everywhere and so forth. So, you know, I think that that's one that we don't think about. I think it, going back to what we talked about before, where you sort of had this idea in your head as you go through school, for example, of what it is to be a doctor um, or a physician, I should say. Um, It's also the case that your spouse also has an idea in his or her head of what it's like to be the husband or wife of a uh, physician. And so it's important early on to really understand and set some expectations about what that means. You know, I, I, my husband is an attorney. He was an attorney at a big firm here in Atlanta for a long time. And, it, you know, thankfully we, we didn't see, uh, I didn't see a lot of this and didn't feel a lot of it, but there's a certain lifestyle that goes along with, with that sort of career and you can kind of get swept into it if you're not careful. And, and so I think it's important to kind of recognize that in ourselves and, and have our spouses recognize that as well. You know, I wonder if that makes it into popular culture at all. I, I don't watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, but I wonder <laughs> when they're sitting down with each other, if, uh, if they're asking uh, the, the contestants, so how is your 401k looking? Uh, do you consider yourself a prodigious accumulator of wealth? I wonder if right. those types of questions are making it onto the show. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's funny. I don't think I don't think that they probably are. I mean, I think that it, what would be you know some of the things that they could ask that wouldn't be so maybe maybe a little less uh, invasive might be something like, well, you know, what does money mean to you? What does it does it mean that you can have everything you want, or does it just mean that you're secure financially? Like, how, what what's kind of the value that you have or that you place on finances or you know, what's the value that you place on, you know, education and things like that, big ticket items that are going to come up in the future and kind of where your, maybe your future spouse, if you're not married yet, is thinking in terms of finance. Although if they're on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, I think, I think the answer to that is pretty clear. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I want to spend everything. Yep. Yep. Oh, yep. 
Okay. So so let's that gets us to the six characteristics of prodigious accumulators of wealth. And and I'm a fan of of Carol Dweck, who wrote the book Mindset. And so her her whole premise is that characteristics aren't static. You can work on them. So if you're someone who doesn't like to be the life of the party, you can actually change that about yourself slowly over time in in how you think about yourself and through through practice. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we can actually work on these characteristics. So I'd like to get into what these characteristics are and maybe some getting back to the idea of small habits, some suggestions that you might have for small habits that, that can help us to improve in these areas. So the first, it will, is there any one in particular that you'd like to start with? Yeah, you know, I, uh, any of them is fine. I think that the the one that we just talked about is the frugal piece, right? Being frugal set of characteristics is one that absolutely can change over time. We talk about it when we measure it uh, in terms of really being diligent when it comes to our finances and sort of having a, again, a value set that says, hey, I don't, I don't need the most extravagant thing. I need the thing that works, that's going to work for whatever it is I'm, I'm buying it for. And so I think that that is one that, that can change over time. That's a, that's a tough one because it does have sort of this values and attitudes and again, a lot of personality components to it as well. But I think that that's one, again, that we've seen over time, whether we're talking about the, the business owners back in the 80s and 90s that my father studied or folks that are trying to achieve financial independence and retire early and those kinds of things today, that frugality is certainly one of those that really is, is, as we call it, an enduring characteristic of building wealth. But is there anything in particular that you think for, for, for someone who isn't frugal or doesn't think they're frugal? I, and I think sometimes it's the opposite, right? People that don't think they're frugal are frugal mm-hmm. and, and people who think the they Dunning are Kruger. actually yeah, are. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, the Dunning-Kruger in medicine. Yep. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are there any small behaviors that you think could start us down the path to frugality? Like, should we be clipping coupons or mm-hmm. not shopping at the most expensive grocery store or just, you know, little things that probably won't tip the scales very much, but at least we'll, we'll get the behaviors moving in the right direction? Yeah, you know, I'd say a couple of things before we get to kind of the specifics there. I, I think that one of the ways to begin sort of thinking differently about being frugal is to read some examples of individuals that have built wealth on their own by being frugal. You know, for a lot of us, we don't, we're not exposed to people that are frugal, particularly again, if you're someone that maybe grew up in an affluent area and then, you know, today it's, you know, has colleagues that are affluent and so forth. It's starting to understand that that's, there, there is a different kind of way of living and a way of managing your life. So I'd say that's probably the first one. And that can come from reading or reading blogs, for example. Again, there's a lot of folks out there that write about this now, thankfully. So that that's one of them for sure. I think that the other one is, is simply, again, it's going back to goal setting and sort of habit formation. So you've got to know where you're headed. I don't think you can just sort of become more frugal if there's, there isn't sort of an overarching goal about why you're going to make that change. So, I, you know, that's not a very concrete set of uh, uh, suggestions there, but those are the two things to, to think about. Again, understanding that people have done this before and that you can do it as well. And then also having, you know, really clear overarching goals for why you want to, you know, adapt more of a frugal lifestyle. Well, I think that gets us to planning, 
right? And actually, just just to, to summarize those characteristics that, that we're going to get to, confidence, frugality, responsibility, social indifference, conscientiousness, and, and planning. And planning, I think that's an area really ripe for habit development. So if you're going to, you need a reason to be frugal, and you find your reason, what you're saying is you find your reason to be frugal by making a plan. And so laying out how much money you need to save over, over X period of time in order to get to whatever your financial goal is. And, and this is where the financial advisor comes in, right? In, in figuring out what these numbers are. Right. Um, and, and certainly they can do these themselves as well. You know, I think that that's something, you know, an advisor can help or if they have the time and want and have the interest, um, you know, they certainly can do it as well. You know, this, this, the planning component, um, we actually characterize or it's kind of broader than that. So it's planning and monitoring. So when we think about the person with their head in the sand, it's also kind of getting out of the sand and saying, okay, you know, once a week or once a month, I'm going to actually, you know, check in on how things are going. And again, that can either uh, be something that you set up yourself, whether you're using like YNAB or something like that, or that you're... Whether you're using what? Like YNAB, you need a budget. What is that? Have ever seen that? It's a it's an app that you can use to do some financial planning. You know, self directed kind of financial planning and or Mint. You know, it, whatever it might be that you use that you want to check in on. It's definitely uh, part of this planning component. So it's not only setting goals and taking the time to plan out your week, but then or you know again or your month or your year. But it's also uh, being aware of what's going on in your financial life as well. So I would imagine these apps make it easy to check in on that stuff. So you know when we get get into what we were saying earlier, that big workout, right? The biggest workout is choosing your your neighborhood. You got to have a lot of self control when you're choosing that neighborhood and don't splurge on the what you think of as the big doctor house. But another one is, is just getting one of these apps and setting it up such that checking in can be that small habit. So checking in once a month to see how everything's going on Mint or YNAB um, is going to be the, you know, you can even have a reminder once a month. You know, I think the more automated, the better. So something pops up on your phone, says check Mint today, and then you check it and you see how, see how everything's going. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Would you say that's the minimum effective dose for planning, or is there <laughs> is there anything else that you would you would recommend for for planning and maybe for automation? Yeah, you know, again, I'm I'm an industrial psychologist, so I'm certainly not I'm not a financial planner, and I, that's not my my area of expertise. I, we measure those characteristics in individuals, so I would say. You know, from what we know, it's um, having, you know, again, some set of goals, having some time to monitor, and those that do those things consistently and more often than others tend to be those that accumulate wealth faster. All right. Well, earlier we talked about social indifference as well. I, I don't know if we really need to dive into that any further. Because as we covered, this is where doctors fail, right? <laughs> we see what our colleagues are, are buying. Maybe they're in a specialty that makes a lot more money, but we don't care. We went to medical school and did residency too. So we want to have the, we want to drive the Range Rover or the Jaguar. Um, or maybe it's our parents' expectations or our spouses. But this, mm-hmm. is, this is where we yep. fail. So, so we already talked about, uh, about the neighborhood. Any, any other tips to cultivating social indifference such that we, mm-hmm. can, we can really ignore those those outside influences. Well, I you know, I'll give I'll what 
I think we should give um, doctors a little bit of a pass here because one of the things that we know is that social indifference also has a negative side, right? So it makes us a little less concerned about the welfare of others. Uh, just, you know, it, it is tied to that, even though it's not exactly the same thing. So I think that naturally most physicians are are concerned about others. That's, you know, one of the reasons you probably went into the field. And so here, though, we're talking about its influence, obviously, on our finances. So, you know, I, I think that, again, the tips are to have, you know, certainly st- start setting goals and recognize that the desire to sort of, again, compete with one another socially or, or through what we buy isn't conducive to a financial goal that you've set. And that's, that's how you, again, begin to sort of change that mindset, if you will. I think, personally, at least, since I discovered the FIRE movement, uh, mm-hmm. It's helped me to to dial back on competing or keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, they have their own method of keeping up with the Joneses, though. They kind of compete for who can drive the crappiest car the longest, <laughs> right? Yeah, so that yep, they can yep. stay in. So there's still there's still that social influence there. But I think you can cultivate who you surround yourself with, at least in the virtual world, um, right. In order to help you, actually, for for myself, listening to podcasts uh, before starting my own, I thought, you know, I. I don't, I don't know these other podcasts, although some now some, some of them I do, but previously I didn't, yet I associated them with my, I guess, electronic social circle. And I mm. wouldn't have started this had I not been exposed to that. So I think you can, you know, even if you're in one neighborhood, you can alter those social influences based on who you're interacting with in in the virtual world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the pieces that was very different again from when my father started studying this to, you know, to today is the fact that you've got this influence literally in your pocket all day long um where you can see what everybody's doing and so it it makes it even more challenging to to ignore what everybody's doing, but one of the the researchers that I, I think is is awesome is uh, Cal Newport, who his book um, Deep Work talks about. Again, you're not you know if you have all these distractions, and it certainly is a distraction. It's also keeping you from doing your best work. So there's you know several reasons why you know you don't want to continuously have this influence of other people within within your life. Yeah, he talks about the flow state, right? Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think the the best example of that just so you know, for people who aren't familiar with his work, the best example of that in our world would be someone who's in the middle of the operating room and mm-hmm. let's say they're a cardiothoracic surgeon and they're doing a quadruple bypass and five hours have passed and yet to them it feels like no time has passed at all because yeah, they're just yeah. so engrossed in in what they're doing. You know, yep, high, high skill work like that. Absolutely, yep. But his whole idea is you can't get to that high skill work yep. without... With, with all those social distractions. So the, the yep. new commodity is not going to be intelligence. It's going to be intention, uh, attention. Absolutely. To yep. focus. Yep. So the ability to ignore the, or, or rather to have social indifference. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so you mentioned a little while ago that you're an industrial psychiatrist. So I just want to segue just for a moment into, into something because one of the one of the characteristics that you talk about is is conscientiousness, and I've heard you discuss that as a predictor of success for employees. So, just a, a brief interlude into a different topic before we talk about it for wealth accumulation. Since it's so important for those of us who hire employees, how do we 
test or how do we figure out who's conscientious? Such is such a, a critical piece of of hiring. Yeah. So, you know, that that was my my field before uh, I started focusing on sort of the wealth accumulation side, which again, kind of was my, my our, our quote unquote family business, but um, spent several years creating assessments to help and, and organizations hire, you know, leaders or individuals. And really the first step to determining how and what characteristics you want to hire for begins with really understanding the job. And so when you kind of look at what it takes to be successful in most jobs, it tends to be conscientiousness, one of the best predictors of future job performance. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways to measure it. Uh, Certainly, you could do that through using interviews, uh, structured interview questions, um, there are several different employee selection assessments out there that you can use that that can help you measure conscientiousness. But you know, again, as an industrial psychologist, you, know, you have to remember that it really goes back to that the specific job. And so there are a lot of while there are a lot of ways that you can measure different characteristics and use that to hire folks, there's also you know legal implications for using some of those tools. So as a legal disclaimer, I'll put that out there that. Even though it is conscientiousness is one of the best predictors, it's still important to really understand um, what it takes to be successful in a specific role. So if you're hiring a receptionist, for example, there are a lot of different characteristics that you would want to look for, and conscientiousness is one of those. Okay. Well, (laughs) I don't know how much that that simplified it for the hiring and and for the hiring process, but definitely something, something to keep in mind. So, yeah, yeah. So, so how do we? How does that tie into wealth accumulation? Because it would seem to me conscientiousness is is almost the opposite side of social indifference, right? So, for if you're conscientious, I'm sure some of that motivation comes from being caring what other people think of you. And so, if you have the social indifference on lockdown, then it might affect your conscientiousness. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a little bit different. So if you think about, there's a big five model of personality, right? And conscientiousness is one of those big five components. One of the other components is agreeableness. So how long, how well we get along with others, whether we like to be around people, whether we're accommodating. And that's sort of where social indifference falls a little bit too. So it's kind of a combination of factors. So it really is something different. And when it comes to accumulating wealth, somebody that's conscientious is going to be pretty diligent. You know, they, they plan, uh, again, going back to the planning component, and they are careful. So they're not making mistakes. They're remembering to pay their bills on time, even things that are simple like that. Um, and so that's where conscientiousness comes into play. Really, one of the, one of the factors that is, is again, a, a predictor of future financial success is this you know ability to kind of stick with a plan again pay your bills on time things like that and again it, it's the same those are the same kinds of characteristics that you would want in an employee right somebody that shows up um, that that diligently does their work that pays attention to detail all of those kinds of things any any recommendations for how we can develop that in ourselves if we feel like it might be one of our weak points so I think with conscientiousness again it's a personality characteristic certainly it can change somewhat over time. But I think that going back to your, when you mentioned kind of the small pieces or small habits, really focusing on, uh, again, a 
specific area, having a bigger goal can help. I think that um, some of the reminders that are available now that say, okay, it's time to check in on your, you know, or pay your bills and things like that can help. Um, this is one too, where if, if you're not as conscientious as you would like, again, certainly having a spouse or a partner that takes on some more of the detail work or outsourcing that work can be useful as well. So I don't have a ton of care of, of recommendations on becoming more conscientious because it is more like a personality set of personality characteristics pulled together that are kind of challenging to, to improve on, but there are ways to sort of get around that as well. Well, I, I think for for someone to be motivated to develop any of these, it comes back to something else that you talk about, which is the locus of control or r- responsibility, right? And I and I think for some doctors, we feel like we're a leaf in the wind, right? We're at the whim of the medical industrial complex, and we're constantly being hounded by administrators, and we have no no control. Whereas other physicians, maybe they're in a different position, and maybe it's just how they feel about their situation. They feel like if they weren't happy, they could quit. They were the ones who decided to become a doctor. This is the world that they live in. They can control what they can control, and they are, but they are still the, the captain of the ship. So, so how does that influence wealth accumulation? Yeah, you know, um, there's been a lot of research on this particular area. And again, it's more like a personality characteristic. So the idea that you can actually affect your environment and that your actions can actually have consequences, um, sort of having that mindset and behaving accordingly is related to net worth, uh, independent of your age or your income. Again, if you kind of understand that there are certain, again, certain things that you can do in your financial life that are going to have long-term positive outcomes. And you start understanding that, reading about it, becoming more confident. Again, all these things are somewhat related. You'll have a higher likelihood of building and accumulating wealth over time. If instead, you know, you kind of view, like you said, you know, things are just happening to me. I can't do anything about this. That that sort of mindset is one that may keep you from accumulating wealth and reaching and achieving goals. Uh, and again, the way to sort of get a, you know change that mindset to have having one that really again focused on what you can do and how you can impact your financial success. I think this comes from building knowledge, from also re- again going back to reading and understanding um, how others have done this on their own. Um, that can be really powerful as well. So I think that, again, having understanding that, that what we do can affect our financial future is, is really critical. Now, do you think it's a bit of the chicken or the egg? Meaning like you've accumulated X amount of wealth and therefore you have more of a locus of control because you feel like you, because you have accumulated enough wealth, you can leave X situation. Or do you feel like in order to become an accumulator of wealth, you need to have the locus of control? Because you said it's related yeah. to net worth. Yeah, so it's uh, having a more of a, hey, what I do matters sort of mindset is related to net worth regardless of age or income. So I don't know which, you know, comes first. And I don't, you know, it's not necessarily causal. We just know that it's related. So there's a correlation there. I would say there's probably a moderator, meaning, for example, somebody that's already accumulated quite a bit of wealth perhaps now believes that they can, you know, impact their financial future. But if we're talking about individuals who are, who haven't made it yet, right? So who maybe don't think that they've really achieved their financial goals. We know that having that mindset that, hey, I can impact things is one that will 
will uh, relate to net worth. There's one more characteristic that we haven't touched on yet, or we did only briefly, and that's and that's confidence. And I think this is a place where where maybe small habits can be helpful. Being confident in volatile markets, or and mm-hmm. and being confident in our ability to to manage our financial ourselves. This is the one that's that's tied into financial literacy, correct? Yeah, you know, I think becoming confident, and you know, obviously, there's a general, hey, am I am I a confident person to begin with? But when we're talking specifically about financial confidence, we've seen a tie between building your knowledge and becoming more confident. Um, some of that can certainly come with experience as well. But um, again, one of the ways to combat some of those you know, bad decisions that we make, right? When we're talking about investing, for example, is simply to build your knowledge in that area. Um, not so much that you become overconfident because as we all know, when we're overconfident, we start making mistakes. We don't do things the right way from an investing perspective and things like that. But it's really what we call an effective confident. I have knowledge. I have some experience. I have folks that I can call on or count on to help me. If, should I need that, you know, some help with my finances, that kind of thing. Are there any other particular, are there any other specific resources aside from maybe listening to my past episodes about personal finance or or hiring Ryan Inman, who is the <laughs> fee-only financial advisor that introduced us, or maybe searching on a podcast site to find out, uh, search Dr. St- Sarah Stanley Fallah to find out what other podcasts she's been on, aside from those. Um, right, anything right. else that you would recommend to start dipping our toes, but particularly for someone who's new at this, who it seems extremely daunting. Yeah, it, it, particularly when it comes to the investing side, if you're familiar with Daniel Crosby, he is um, another psychologist, but he really focuses primarily on um, investing. So he has a book that came out last year, in 2018, called The Behavioral Investor. And he, I think that particularly for your audience and for the folks listening, the way that he talks about kind of what our mindset is and investing related to, again, our psychology and and behavioral economics as well is a great resource and can really help you build your confidence by recognizing the kinds of mistakes that we might make as well. So that's one I would definitely point folks to. So if we could get a little bit personal, if that's okay. I think your father's career, some a little bit mirrors how it works for physicians, right? He had considerable success with his writing career, particularly with The Millionaire Next Door. And with that, he had a jump in his income. And similar to how a, a resident, right, we we do we do okay as residents, but then when you become a t- an attending, your your salary jumps considerably all at the same time. In contrast to other professions, where you know as your business gets slowly more successful, you get you know it, it slowly changes over time. So how did he prevent himself to falling into the traps that he wrote about? in the under accumulators of wealth? Well, you know, I, I think that he had, he did have, well, well, certainly the millionaire next door was extremely successful and the millionaire mind as well. You know, he, he was sort of building his, uh, you know, kind of career slowly. He, he was started out as a professor, you know, certainly that's not, while it's not 
um, the lowest paid salary. It's not, you know, he wasn't uh, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and then began doing a lot of consulting work. So that work um, and then, you know, his sub- subsequent publications, uh, you know, kind of changed the trajectory of his life, certainly. But then, like, but, he was on Oprah, right? He was. He was on Oprah twice. <laughs> yep, yep. That was pretty crazy. Um, absolutely. And so I think that, uh, you know, again, he's not here to, to answer those questions. But I guess from from a, being his daughter, I can share that kind of side of it. Um, he's just, he just was never pretentious. So he never felt the need to demonstrate that success to other people. He knew that he was successful. I mean, you know, there were a lot of uh, external things telling him that he was as well. Um, and he really just, you know, never changed kind of how he did things. There were a few things that he may have bought uh, as he became more successful that were a little different maybe than when he started out, certainly. But, you know, again, he just, uh, he was always had his sort of blue collar background and uh, continued to sort of maintain that uh, as he, as he, you know, lived his life. One of my concerns for myself is that I am, I'm, I'm doing well, better than my parents did, who, who did better than their parents did. So, I, you know, I want to make sure that my kids remain grounded. So how did he instill these values in you? And then how are you now passing those values on to your children? Well, you know, I wouldn't say I'm, I, I don't certainly have all the characteristics uh, that we talked about today and, and he didn't either. So I, I guess, but what we do have is certainly the knowledge of what it takes to, to build wealth. I think that the kinds of things that he taught me include Included things like hard work, patience, that things take the time. You know, certainly his his career wasn't successful overnight. And again, that you don't have to do what everybody else is doing. And certainly in many cases, what everybody else is doing is funded through debt. So I think that, um, you know, he, he instilled those things and we continue to do that in our family as well. I think pointing out, what you're saying is pointing out how some people spend their money is in order to show wealth or show status that they don't necessarily have. Like your your dad, through his success being on Oprah twice, right? That was it wasn't it wasn't him trying to show his status, but that ultimately accomplished that. And so he then didn't need to compensate in other ways by spending money that then would cut into his ability to continue to to plan for the future. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know if I'd say that necessarily. I mean I I think going back to your your point about what we're teaching our kids is probably more relevant. You know, I think that we live in a pretty affluent area with you know outside of Atlanta and you know daily our children are coming home from high school or middle school sharing with us that you know they feel you know like they're um, being left out because they haven't had five iPhones and they don't have the latest one you know things like that so those are the kinds of conversations that we're having at home where you can say you know hey I don't know what else that family is spending on. That's, you know, that's just not what we're spending money on. But hey, you know, we're, we're saving and we have a different perspective. And here are the things that that allows us to do, vacation or whatever. You're not throwing the other family under the bus is what you're saying. No, and I think that's important too. You know, it's not, you know, you don't want to, because you don't know. We don't know yeah. what's happening. Um, you know, it could be that they have more money than you could ever imagine. And you don't know that. But, you know, I think it's important just to share that that's not, 
you know, part of what our family does. And if you can start that from an early age, that's really, really useful. So don't start off with the 200 person, three-year-old birthday parties. That can be really helpful so that they don't have that expectation, but helping them understand that, you know, there's, there's things that you have to say for that takes time, which means we're not, you know, going to have the latest iPhone and things like that. Oh, those definitely happen here on Long Island. I enjoy going to those with, uh, you know, hiring a band and it's like, uh, it's like going to a wedding, but it's a three-year-old birthday party and the three-year-old's not going to even remember it. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that, that the, the uh, money spent on a three-year-old birthday is probably predictive of something. <laughs> Definitely. Yep. So is there anything else, any other parting words that you'd like to help do to help us preventing, prevent us from becoming our financial stereotypes? Right. Yeah. You know, I think just going back to what we talked about earlier, which is really think, you know, starting to think about um, thinking about that stereotype, thinking about, um, you know, taking the time out of your busy, busy day, because I know that um, most of the folks listening are extremely busy, but finding some quiet time to, con- you know, really consider kind of what it is that you wanted for your life and what you imagined and then think about whether or not that really fits with becoming financially successful for the long term. And sometimes that self-reflection can just kind of begin a, a cycle of, of, you know, changing your behaviors and habits. Yeah, we actually had an anesthesiologist on the, on the show a few episodes ago. He calls himself the physician philosopher. And he talks about the kinder questions, George Kinder's three questions. Mm-hmm. Like if you had yeah. a certain amount of time left on this yes. earth, how would, you, how would you choose to spend that time? And that can then help you with that financial planning, make those decisions. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks a lot for for taking the time out of your your busy schedule to to come and talk to us. So I, I really appreciate it, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Today's guest is not an attorney, accountant, or financial advisor, and neither am I. This information should not be considered personalized financial advice, and we will not be held liable for the use of any information contained within this interview. It is your responsibility to verify anything you've heard using other trusted and reputable resources.